0: My name is Barbara Gagliotti and I am the associate director of Crossroads Cultural Center and we are co-sponsoring tonight's event. I'm very sorry to inform you that Robert Riley will not be here tonight. He broke his arm Uh on Sunday in two places. (laughs) And so he is in a lot of pain and he is also very sorry not to be able to be here to greet uh, Wael Farouk, uh, who is a friend of his. He didn't tell me, and he seemed like uh, (laughs) he was... uh, uh, I didn't want (laughs) to ask. But, of course, he's on the mend, but, you know, it's just not been so many days, so he, um, he thought he'd be able to throw his jacket over his, you know, arm and get away with it, but but that was that that <laughs> he quickly understood that was not going to happen. So um, so he asked he asked me to step in and Crossroads Cultural Center is a co-sponsor of tonight's event, and we are an organization that finds its inspiration in um, the charism of Father Luigi Giussani. Uh, it's a Catholic lay movement movement which is present uh, in. Um, 170 countries throughout the world and our goal is to bring uh, opportunities for education which offer the possibility to look at reality with with openness with curiosity and with critical awareness often our events like the events that we're going to uh... uh... we participate in tonight or the occasion for profound dialogue and frank dialogue, and the occasion for surprising encounters, like the one that we've had with our friend uh, Wyo Farouk, who could have imagined, I think, the importance of the chance encounter that, that you uh, between a, a Christian student uh, of Arabic language, and his Muslim professor that generated uh, a long history of friendship and has opened pathways for greater understanding between cultures and religion. And you know, perhaps uh, um, uh, Professor Farouk will tell us a little bit about more about that in the question and answer period. Um, but that's what we do, to generate encounter to generate uh, uh, an affection where you can actually speak of things and have a a dialogue about things. In addition to his academic work, and I won't go into his biography because you've had that uh, in the um, announcements that were sent out, Professor uh, uh, Farouk was instrumental in publishing the religious sense in Arabic. The Religious Sense is the seminal work of Father Luigi Giussani about the human person, about the use of reason, about religiosity, and um, Professor uh, Wail was uh, extremely um, happy to bring that to light in, in Arabic. He also dedicates quite a bit of his time uh, to promoting dialogue between Christian and Muslim thinkers and leaders, and we thank you for that and The last thing that i 'll mention before I introduce our speaker is that the last time that we had the honor of hosting you uh, was when you shared the stage with Robert Riley in two thousand and twelve, and this was at the uh, National press Club. Uh, Bob had just published his work on the closing of the Muslim mind, and we were in uh, sort of the waning period of the Arab Spring. So we had a very lively dialogue on, on was there any hope coming out of the Arab Spring? Uh, and I hope that we can get a little update on that tonight, perhaps in the question and answer period. Um, so the format of tonight's uh, discussion uh, will be a presentation followed by questions and answers and we ask that during the question and answer period that all speakers please approach the microphone because this is being filmed so that we can put it on the websites um, and to be as succinct as possible in your comments and, and to make questions in the form of a question. Um, please join me in welcoming uh, Professor Wail Farouk who is professor of Arabic language Literature and Culture at the Catholic University of Milan in Italy. Uh, he will speak on his latest work, which is entitled Conflicting Arab Identities. Um, so thank, be, uh, thank you for coming, Wael, and being with us.
1: Thank you very much, Barbara. I am really honored to be here this evening with you. I am really grateful for Bob Riley for inviting me and for his uh, hospitality. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to excuse me for my English at the beginning because it's not the strong Egyptian accent, but it's also combined by an Italian accent, so... <laughs> God help you! <laughs> the structure of the presentation, I'm going to uh, part from the uh, explosion of the fatwa, this phenomenon uh, that you can find in all Islamic world, especially in Arab world. And after uh, presenting this phenomenon, I am going to speak about why. And I am proposing two answers, one uh, within the Islamic tradition itself, what I call the duality of uh, Ummah tribe, and the other one within the form of modernity that has arrived to the Arab uh, world. And after this, I will move to speak also about the fatwa in West and the Muslims living in West, but particularly in Europe, because it's a statistical study that I made on Muslims uh, in Europe. So this fatwa, this phenomenon, is very important, and it's regarding all aspects of everyday life for all Muslims and for Muslim societies. As you can see here, starting from 1990, we have this exclusion of this technological fatwa. We can find fatwa on Facebook, uh, even the, in, on the smartphones, there is an app for fatwa. There is Google Imam. There are a lot of forms you know, of the fatwa uh, in modern world. Just to give you an image about how huge this phenomenon is, we will see that Islam week, for example, you, know, you see 170 fatwa, 24 fatwa per day. This is only one, uh, one website in five languages. Other, there are others in 16 languages. Uh, there are millions of people who are following uh, I'm not going to read everything so we we'll stay with time millions of people who are following the uh, Imams who are issuing this uh, fatwa and one of them for example you know is followed by uh, Amr Khaled It's an Egyptian uh, preacher and is followed by 29 millions which is 3-4 Arab countries combined together so, it's a fatwa that you can find uh, in every uh, everyday life, Muslim, uh, you can find it, you know, present from the very big questions to the very small questions. One of these fatwas, I, um, I found it, for example, on the uh, Facebook page of Al-Azhar uh, University. And it's about a young man who just a student in, in, uh, in American University in Cairo, just got his new smartphone. And as all we do, the first thing he uh, was going to do is to personalize his smartphone. And as a religious young man, the first thing he thought to do was downloading the Holy Quran on his smartphone. The internet uh, is very slow in Egypt, so downloading took very long time. And while he is waiting for the the download, uh, his stomach started to move. He got this basic, superficial, but very important need to go to bathroom. But he said, "Okay, I'm not going to waste two hours of downloading. I will resist wait uh, till I complete the downloading of the Holy Quran and after run to the bathroom. And when he was on the limits hmm, of his tolerance, the download finished, and he started to run uh, towards the bathroom. In front of the bathroom, he stopped. Came to his mind a question. Can I enter the bathroom with my phone full of the words of God, of the Holy Quran? Wouldn't it be an insult of uh, the words of God and the Holy Quran? And he stopped in front of the bathroom, you know, divided between the pain of his stomach and the pain of of his mind. Cannot make a decision. This fatwa uh, gave an example of what, I want to, uh, of what I want to present today. This young man is not poor because he has just got his new brand the smartphone. He has got a good relationship with technology. He is well educated. He is a student in university. He is everything that we used to, to give, that not we used to give as an answer of the crisis of Islam today. Not the poverty, not the lack of education, not any of these things. He's educated, he's rich, he has has everything. But he cannot make such a simple decision whether to enter the bathroom or not. So this is what I tried to study in this book. What went wrong with the Muslim world? But before I go through this, I wanted to quickly uh, present what is fatwa. Because fatwa and the ifta is a very beautiful and important mechanism in Islamic uh, tradition. The fatwa in, in language, the fatwa in language we see has all of this beautiful meaning of uh, renewal, of uh, um, seeking knowledge, of seeking uh, wisdom. So it's, it has a beautiful meaning in Arabic language. It has a beautiful meaning um, in Islamic tradition. It was mentioned 11 times in the Holy Quran always with a very positive meaning the fatwa at the end we can say it's a a sort of seeking for perfection in fact in Islamic history we see the first one who issued fatwa is God himself in fact we can divide the Quran into two different categories one was revealed uh, initially to Prophet Muhammad and the other one was a response to a human question a human curiosity or a human need so the fatwa from its meaning in language, in tradition, and from its history, it's a very important mechanism not only to keep living in harmonious way with the Sharia, but to produce the Sharia, to to produce the tradition itself. So this was in the history, in the beginning, in the early history of Islam, it used to be uh, like this. But this beautiful tradition and this beautiful meaning with time disappeared. The fatwa became like a closed form huh, that we have to force reality to enter into it. So we see uh, the positive meaning of the fatwa that was at the beginning, producing the Sharia, producing the tradition, guarantee a harmonious relationship between what is religious and the reality and the human needs. Okay. Uh, the mechanism of fatwa also in Islamic jurisprudence is very interesting because the fatwa cannot exist of there is no curiosity. If there is no question, the fatwa cannot exist. Uh, and after issuing the fatwa, the people, the seeker of the fatwa is not... Uh, um, now Italian is coming. <laughs> he is not uh, forced to follow this fatwa. he can accept it or refuse it so the fatwa in summary is based on the freedom the freedom to ask the freedom to express your question and the freedom to accept the answer or to refuse it so the freedom is the key the key word of this uh, islamic tradition Uh, the fatwa in the quran also as i said present a large part of the quranic uh, verses okay and we see also This is also in in, a rhetorical way. The most common, the most diffused rhetorical and linguistic form in the Quran is the question. So I can say that the most important thing for the Islamic tradition is not the answer given, but the question by the man. The question, the seeking of knowledge, the desire of knowledge, and this curiosity is the key of uh, living in a harmonious way with Islamic tradition. Of course, here is another hadith, you will find it in in the handouts, the full text of this uh, prophetic tradition. And in this hadith, we have this principle, very important principle, that Prophet Muhammad gave it as an answer to uh, some of his companions, uh, seeking the knowledge of what is good and what is bad. And the Prophet Muhammad said to him, consult your heart. The heart is the ultimate reference for a Muslim. His heart is uh, his reference. Of course, I said in theory, because unfortunately, this is the theory, but the practice is very different and the reality is very different from uh, from this uh, theory. How is this? I I choose also another another example of the fatwa that I'm going to use it as a starting point uh, for this analysis. The fatwa speaks about a young um, lady, a Muslim lady working in an international bank in Egypt. And she was talking with some of her uh, friends, uh, uh, relatives, and they told her, yes, okay, you have a prestigious work, you earn a lot of money, uh, you have everything wonderful, but all of this is coming from a sin, okay? And she said, what sin? And they said to her, you are working in a bank, staying in a closed room alone with your colleague. And this, according to Islamic tradition, is a sin. So the lady was astonished, and because she was sure that in Islamic tradition such a stupid thing cannot exist, she called one of the famous TV programs of Fatwa, because we have a lot of TV programs where the Imam listen on air to the questions of the audience and they give the answers. So she was so sure that it's impossible, you know, her work is against Islamic tradition. She went to... mm, she called this TV program, asked this Imam if really her work, is, if she is really committing a sin doing this work, staying alone in, an, in a closed room with her colleague. And strangely, the uh, Imam was not an ordinary Imam. He was the head of the Department of Hadith in Al-Azhar University, in the Faculty of Religious Foundation. Um, and he said to her, yes, it is a sin. The lady was shocked, and not only the lady. 35 of Egyptian families are supported by women work, by women labor. So 35% of Egyptian families are going to face a serious problems because most of these ladies are working in a conditions that, from his point of view, are not um, going well with the Islamic tradition. So she collapsed, said to him, what should I do? I am paying university for my kids, What, what can I do? And this, he was astonished by her reaction. Said, "I don't know I, uh, the what, you know. The only precedent I can see in the Islamic tradition is that one of uh, Mawlā Abī Hodaifa, uh, a young man, was adopted by one of the companions of Prophet Muhammad. Who, when the um, adopting children was prohibited by Islam, uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, uh, allowed his mother." Hmm, who adopted him, to breastfeed him several times, five times, in order to be like a mother for him and he can stay in the house. So, he advised the lady to breastfeed her colleague in work five times. (laughs) It's not a joke. It might be funny, but it's not a joke. So, he uh, consulted her to breastfeed her colleague in work uh, five times, Tell such fiction because this is this is uh, you know the literary the tradition that also I you will find it in the handout I think also. So uh, uh, this lady of course was astonished. Of course, not only the lady was astonished; the whole society was astonished. We have uh, thousands of caricature, of article, of newspaper, of comedians making fun of this fatwa and you know making drawing. A line of men waiting in front of an office of a beautiful colleague, all of them, you know, uh, waiting to <laughs> be breast you know. So the whole society was really astonished by, by this fatwa. But it didn't stop there, because at that time, when this fatwa was, uh, was, was issued, the Muslim Brotherhood, the community of Muslim Brotherhood, had at that time 25% of the seats of the Egyptian parliament. So when they heard this fatwa, all media, TV talking about it, they said, okay, this was made by the government to, uh, to defame us and our slogan, because the slogan of Muslim Brotherhood is, Islam is the solution. And the Islam is the solution, how? By the application, by applying the Islamic law or the Sharia. So if this is the Sharia, nobody will accept to to be applied. So they, thought, they uh, thought this is a plan made by the government against their, their ideology. So they revolted in the parliament, and they uh, invited the minister of quest to question him in, in the parliament. So the University of Al-Azhar was also scandalized by the fatwa of its professor, and they decided to send him to retirement. The professor revolt. Why you I, you sending me to retirement? I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. I just followed the rules of the Islamic law that all of us applying it to whatever case comes in front of us. The hadith that I used is hadith sahih uh, is correct, okay, and was never uh, contested, you know, in the Islamic law box. So the jurists of Muslim Brotherhood replied to him: Yes, but this hadith was. Only for this case of Maula Abi Hodaipa, so the debate uh, went ahead. So the professor didn't accept to go to retirement, and he went to the court. Refusing this, the Egyptian government issued uh, an administrative decision that making a fatwa should be by license. So if somebody wants to give a fatwa because it's becoming a chaos, to give a fatwa he has to get license from the Egyptian government. So it's a sort of monopolizing huh? the, uh, the, the power the, uh, of giving the fatwa because it became a stronger phenomenon in in the society. So we see when we speak also what lacks these societies is modernity, it's not true. Because we see the um, the modern institution of the Egyptian state, all of them were involved with For years, because this lasted four years, uh, debating uh, whether a man should be breastfeeded by his female colleague in order to stay with her in office or not. We see the parliament was involved, university was involved, the government was involved, the media was involved, the court was involved. All institutions that define what we call modern state were involved in this in this debate, which put also another big question mark on what we call modern state in Arab Islamic world. It didn't stop there, because after uh, two years, one of the consular of the king of uh, Saudi Arabia, he issued again the same fatwa. At that time, thank God, today uh, women in Saudi Arabia can drive their own cars by themselves. But at that time, it was still prohibited for the women in Saudi Arabia to drive cars so a lady asked, can she make long trip traveling by, in, his, in her car with her male driver? And she received the same answer that she has to breastfeed him.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the Saudi society that is much more conservative than the Egyptian one, they didn't make joke about it. They were very angry. So the consular of the king, Al-Obaikan, he answered, but you understand wrongly We are not this open-minded, stupid like Egyptians. It's enough that the lady put her milk in a cup and the driver drink this cup of milk, (laughs) and that's it. They have to be in in, in contact with her uh, breast. So to make it short, again, after another year, the same fatwa came back again, but this time from uh, Tunis, the same debate. And Tunis is a very secular uh, society, very modernized society. They just lately, a few months ago, decided that men and women would be equally in inheritance, though. So they think that you know the son gets twice, like the daughter is not applied anymore, guess, according to the Tunisian civil law now. But the fatwa also arrived there. And there, the answer was much more intelligent than the Egyptian and the Saudi one, because they said, why the woman milk here? We have technology to it today. It's enough to put the web camera in the room, so they are observed all the time, and there is no need, there is no need, <laughs> there is no need to, to this thing of breastfeeding. So we see all reactions was to go around the tradition. With all of this modern institution, we still look to the presence of women in the public space as a source of sin and, and evil. So this fatwa gives a clear example not about the conflict between Islamic tradition and modernity, but about the very harmonious way of coexisting together. But coexisting is not between Islamic tradition and modernity, but between a defamed Islamic tradition and a defamed modernity. So, to make it also more clear, in all Arab countries, mostly in most of Arab countries, we have a parliament, The main role of this parliament is to justify the tyranny. So we have most of modern institutions are functioning exactly against against their meaning. And I am coming to speak about this. So this coexisting contradiction, this crisis, I think, and this, as Barbara mentioned before, how I met uh, Robert Reilly for the first time, reading his book, in which he tried to give an answer to uh, to this uh, crisis, and in my book also, I try to to give uh, to give an answer. So it's not about two different things that cannot live together. It's about the coexistence, uh, the adapting, one uh, <coughs> the, the, the the adaptation of tradition of the bad elements of modernity and the adaptation of modernity of the bad elements of the uh, Islamic tradition. Uh, So, and I think this starts really from the the early beginning of Islam. There are a lot of uh, main factors hmm, dominating the Muslim thinking today. One of them, for example, is always looking to the past. hmm, Always uh, searching for legitimacy of whatever we do in the past. How we can understand this, how we can understand a lot of actual modern contemporary practice of Islam, I think we can find this in the moment of the beginning of Islam. We see this, the first dualism is between Islam and Jahiliyyah. The word Islam, as many of you, I think they know very well, comes from the root Salama, which means peace, safety, and very beautiful meanings. Uh, But in the moment, Of the uh, beginning of Islam, two words appeared uh, in the Arabic language, the word Islam itself and the word Jahiliyyah. The word Jahiliyyah, always regarded as the pre-Islamic period, comes from Jahl, which means um, ignorance. And it's ignorance because people were, uh, they didn't know God and they didn't accept the faith of God. But When we really study this moment of the beginning of Islam, we find it's not like this. And there are hundreds of studies by uh, many scholars about this period that proved uh, the jahiliyyah is not a period of violence and stupidity and ignorance. In fact, I can say uh, with certainty that Islam has adopted uh, 99% of what we call jahiliyyah. Most of the things that we know about Islam today they have existed before Islam. The idea of the one God existed before Islam. Cutting off the hands of the thief existed before Islam. Fasting Ramadan existed before Islam. Uh, pilgrimage uh, to Mecca existed before Islam. Everything that characterizes Islam today had already existed before Islam. What we call Jahiliyyah mm, doesn't mean Jahl, which means ignorance, but it means something else. I think I, I presented. Anger associated with violence against the other. This is the meaning of the Jahiliyyah. Jahiliyyah means basically Asabiyyah, or the tribal solidarity. Why I am saying this? Because, as I said before, most of what we call Islamic practice have existed already before Islam. And also because of the image of Islam. How Prophet Muhammad um, considered the previous religions of Islam. This... Very beautiful um, prophetic tradition that you will find it also in your papers. Prophet Muhammad is describing himself as just a brick in a huge, beautiful building that pres- present the prophetic uh, tradition before him. As you see here, you know they asked him what relationship we have with the previous prophets, and he said it's like you know a beautiful, huge, beautiful house. Okay, that people go around it and admiring it. How wonderful. But they see in this house a missing brick. And see, if it doesn't miss this brick, it would be perfect. So Prophet Muhammad comments that I am this brick. So he is nothing but a brick. He is not more important than others. It's just a simple brick in the building of the religion. But it is the one that brings the religious tradition to perfection. So this is the role of Islam. This is what Islam means, really. Islam came, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, to bring to perfection the religious tradition, not to bring a new theology or new ideas. No, to give space for this religions to be practiced and to be lived correctly. Somebody said there was Christianity, Judaism before Islam. Yes, but also we know that the majority of uh, Bedouins in pre-Islamic period, they were Christians, uh, the, the, the most of tribes, they, they were Christian tribes. But they had nothing from Christianity. They were the, the religion of the tribe, the religion of the pre-Islamic society was the tribal solidarity. And before tla- tribal solidarity, all kinds of evil is permitted hmm, for the sake of the tribe. Why the tribe is this important? Hmm? that it makes valueless all of religions and all of human values and the human virtues tribe is very important okay this is what I was trying to say before okay tribe was very important in the pre-Islamic period because tribe was the only way to survive the desert The tribal solidarity was the only way to preserve life in the cruel environment of of the desert. I choose a text, a dialogue between uh, one of the Arabian kings uh, uh, long before Islam and the emperor of Persia, in which they make a debate. So the Arabs are very proud of themselves and say, how does it come you are this proud? You are living like animals. You are eating the worst food. Uh, I mean, you have nothing to to be proud of. How does it come you are this proud? And the uh, Egyptian king, Amen, uh, Egyptian, Arab, the Arab king, Amen, replied to him, uh, giving three pillars of the Arab, presenting the three pillars of the Arab identity. And this content of this dialogue was repeated hundred times in different hundred. Uh, papers of scholars through the time, since the time, for example, of al jahiz HaTel Ahmad Amin, and Taha Hussein. This content was always repeated, this idea of the language. The language is the most important element that built the Arab identity. And it's not, because all civilizations, the language was the, the element that present the identity of whatever civilization. We see the word uh, "barbarism" hmm, came from "barbar," that means he cannot speak the language. Also, in Arabic language, the word "foreigner" it's "ajami," and the word "ajami" comes from "ajma." This word means it's animals because animals have uh, voices, but it's not language. So even Arabs look to the others like animals because they cannot speak language. Romans did the same. And everybody else uh, did the same. But the language is very particular in the the Arabian case. Okay. Uh, Of course, in the desert, life is very particular. And there is a great um, difference between life in desert and the life in agricultural society. In agricultural society, the cradle of civilization is the space Uh, you see in Rome in Italy, in Egypt, in all agricultural societies, it's buildings, it's painting, it's the art. Preserved in space is what? uh, Preserve the memory, the ideas, the virtues, the values of the people. But in the Arabian case, it's not the space, it's the time. Because there is no space. People in desert, they move from a place to another. They are nomadic people. And even when they go back to the first place, it's not anymore the same place. Because with the unpredictable movement of the wind, this place changed completely. So when you go back to the first place, it's not the same anymore. That's why in Arabic language, the word house, the word home, for example, in Arabic language, has many words. Some of you knows Arabic language. We know bait means a house. What does it mean the word bayt in Arabic language? The word bayt means to spend the night. To spend the night, wherever you want, sleeping or not sleeping. If somebody (laughs) spends a night, he hmm, bayt, okay? It's clear here. The other word, for example, is manzil, which comes from the verb nazala. What does it mean nazala? means to come down. To come down from where? From the camel. So your home, your house, is where you come uh, off your uh, your camel. Another word, the word Dara, which to make a circle. What relationship between Dara and the home? Because the caravan in desert, when the night comes and they want to camp, they make a circle and they sleep inside uh, this uh, (coughs) circle. The word maskan comes from the verb sakana, which means to stop, to stand still. So we see all words that express space, place, home in Arabic language are expressing a moment of stop in a continuous moment. Okay? Because the biggest threat for the Bedouins is the time. Why the time because the passing of the time is what kills the people. the passing of the time is what makes uh, uh, what makes you know people are forgotten. This was the fear hmm, of the people living uh, in the desert that's why all words in Arabic language that has a meaning of time has at the same time meaning of something bad or something evil huh? we see for example uh, Okay, we come back to this. We see, for example, the word day. Day in Arabic language is Yaum. It means a day and it means war. Huh? We see the word heen. Okay, heen. Okay. The word heen, okay, it means death. The word time itself in Arabic language is zaman. It means time and also it means disease. The word okay, it means a period of time and uh, catastrophe. So all words in Arabic language that has a meaning of time has a meaning of evil at the same time. So let's here we see the people in agricultural societies, when they meet together, they usually they ask, what's your name from where you are? From Italy, from Egypt, from United States. But people in desert, when they meet, they ask, from whom you are? Because people, they don't come from a place. People come from a person. So people in desert, they don't belong to a place. They belong to a person, to the ancestor of the tribe. So the tribe is the only space for existence. Without the tribe, people do not exist. That's why the tribe was very important for the people in, in, in the desert. It was the only uh, way to survive uh, the desert. This tribal solidarity. The tribe is the only way to keep the memory. We see that the worst punishment in desert wasn't death. There is another you know, m- much worse penalty to be out of the tribe, to be cut from the tribe. Because being out of the tribe means you will be killed and you will be forgotten. So the tribe was the only way to reserve the life of the person, of the individual, and also of, uh, uh, of the whole tribe. So this has resulted a lot of things. The reason, I am trying to, uh, time is, is passing. <laughs> so, so that's also defined the concept of reason in Arabic, uh, in Arabic culture. Because now the reason is not the effort to link and to understand and to generate knowledge. Reason became merely the memory. Hmm? The art, hmm? the art in the Arabic culture, is poetry. And they even call one verse of poetry which means home. Huh? Why? Because the poetry was the art to keep the memory of the tribe, even when a poet was born in in whatever tribe, they spend years celebrating the born for him as a poet, as a child. For years celebrating a presence of a poet. Why? Because this means that the legacy of the tribe will keep to to live. So we see uh, the concept of reason in Arabic language became to to tie up, to keep, to do not let go. Hmm? The knowledge and the memory uh, of the tribe. And this was passed to Islamic tradition. Hmm? We see here a definition was presented by Al Ghazali, say, Aql uh, comes from Aql al Ba'ir, uh, to bind the camel by joining its legs together. And the Aql is to hand the calf. Hmm? Why? Because the concept of Aql, of reason in Arabic language, is to keep the knowledge from being lost. Not to seek hmm, uh, the relation to seek understanding of the relationship between the phenomenon in our, in our world, in our world. So the language became the language became the most important element of the identity of Arab people. When a numan responded to the Emperor of Persia, he said to him, "We have the Arabic language, the most beautiful language, the language, Uh, That is um, better than all other languages, which also passed to Islam. It's uh, the language of the paradise. In Islamic tradition, uh, people in paradise speak Arabic. So try to learn some Arabic if you want to go to paradise. (laughs) (laughs) So the second pillar, of course, is lineage in the Arabic, because knowing the line of the tribe, knowing is what keeps this tribal solidarity pure. And the third was the extremism of virtue. Why? And those who have visited the Arab world, they can see this by themselves. If you go to a very poor family, uh, they can even sell their bed to buy for you a decent meal. Uh, They are extremely generous, they can offer uh, everything for their guests. They are extreme in good virtue and also in bad virtue. But from where comes this extremism in virtue? It comes also from the pre-Islamic period, from the culture of the tribe. Why? Because the memory, the collective memory, doesn't preserve the ordinary, doesn't preserve the normal. In order to keep for yourself a place in the collective memory, you have to be extraordinary. So, extraordinary in generosity, in in courage, in whatever. You have to be extreme in order to keep for yourself a place. Of course, I'm not going to... um, The the, the whole dialogue is in the handout, so you can also have a look to it. But we have hundreds of stories, you know, of people. In desert also, each value, each human virtue has, has a symbol, has a person that make a sort of incarnation of this value. For generosity, for example, we have Hatim. Why? Because once he had some guests arrive to him, he had no food in his home, he cannot offer his guests anything, so he asked his son if he accept to be slaughtered and to, to feed the guests. And the son, for the sake of keeping the virtue of generosity, accepted huh, the, uh, the request of his father. Of course, some people say this is mythology, it's not real, but it's reflecting the very long life of such stories accepted and glorified by the people means it's responding to some uh, elements in their culture. Uh, So we see that Islam came basically to fight this tribal solidarity. Why I'm saying this? Islam, as I I told, I said to you before, didn't bring anything, almost anything new to the world. Islam tried to create uh, a space to the good things brought by previous religion to be practiced and lived, okay? What was the main obstacle against, you know, this Islamic dream, the dream of Prophet Muhammad to create on earth his utopia? A lot of people speaks about Islam as you know at the paradise. You speak about beautiful women in paradise that people go to explode themselves. In fact, the attempt of Prophet Muhammad was to make a paradise on Earth before the afterlife. And making this uh, paradise on Earth, the main obstacle was the tribe because people are divided. And the winter comes justice in front of tribal solidarity. Tribal solidarity wins. Uh, generosity, tribal solidarity, tribal solidarity wins. And we have a lot of poetry uh, and a lot of stories in Arabic heritage not studied in this context. Usually when we speak about Islam, we go to study uh, the Islamic jurisprudence and the Sharia and these things. We don't study, many don't study the cultural context of uh, of this Islamic law. And it's the culture context of this Islamic law say the tribe was the biggest enemy of Islam. You see, when you read carefully Quran, you see that Islam didn't condemn the religions before it, but it condemned the worship of fathers. Because many times in Quran, we have verse six, and if you ask them who have created the earth and the heaven and the whole world, they respond, Allah. So why you don't accept Islam? No, because our fathers didn't, didn't do it. Our, father, our fathers didn't follow huh, uh, new traditions. We keep the, uh, the, uh, the road, the path that was followed by, by our fathers. So the tribe was the, the main enemy, the main obstacle to rely, uh, realize what's so-called so ummah. What is ummah? Ummah is the community of believers huh, that give this space hmm, for the human values and the virtues to be, to be lived. So we see now the true conflict was not between people who believe in God and other people who do not believe in God. The main conflict was between people who want to keep the tribe and the ummah, the Islamic dream, they make the brotherhood between all people on the basis of the faith and of, the, and of uh, this human virtue. Uh, this ummah, this new society, was in, in conflict with the tribe. For example, Muslims. when Muslims wanted to start their calendar, they affronted this question. When Islamic history starts? It started? When Prophet Muhammad was born? No, Prophet Muhammad is just a man. By the way, Prophet Muhammad is sacred for many Muslims, but for Islam is not sacred. He is just a man, was selected by God to deliver a message, but he is not a sacred. He is not Jesus Christ of Muslims, Hmm? because many people think so. So he is just a man. So we cannot hmm, mark the beginning of the history of Islam by the birth of Prophet Muhammad. But we can mark the beginning of Islam by the beginning of the revelation, the Quran, the only sacred thing for Muslims. No, not even Quran. Muslims choose the Hijra, the immigration. When Prophet Muhammad was persecuted in Mecca and he decided to escape from Mecca and go to Al-Medina, to another city. They choose this moment of weakness, huh? of persecution, to mark the beginning of their history. Why is this? Because this moment is very significant. It is the moment in which Prophet Muhammad left the tribe and built the Ummah, the community of Muslim believers. And even the first thing that Prophet Muhammad did in Al-Medina was very interesting. He made something called the fraternity, the brotherhood between Muslims. And it was just, you know, we are brothers. You are my brother, I am your brother, we are good. No, it was a legal brotherhood. It means if somebody dies, his this brother can inherit his hmm, share of, of his fortune. So he built this society, anti-tribal uh, society, in which the tribe hmm, uh, is not present. Even the um, Bagans of Mecca, when they wanted Prophet Muhammad started to make his propaganda, started to preach the tribes, uh, to convince them to to, um, approach, to embrace Islam, Okay. So in order to to make the tribes don't, uh, don't listen to him, they said, okay, what should we say about Muhammad? We say he's a crazy man. He's saying nonsense. No, this is not true. Okay, he's a very good speaker, he's very, he very convincing, we can say he's just a crazy man, okay, he's one of these poets who comes every while speaking about human virtue. No, what he's saying is not poetry and it's not similar to poetry. So what is Prophet Muhammad? At the end, they decided in the parliament of the Quraysh, because Mecca was the New York of the old world, by the way, yeah. Huh? The very long-standing wars, there is no time to say everything, but the very long-standing war between Persia and the Byzantia has de- destroyed all roads for trade. The only one left was this one in desert that go, goes through Mecca. The Bagans and the merchants of Mecca, they controlled the warlet trade at that time. They were buying from west and selling for, for east and the opposite. So they were extremely rich. The society in Mecca was multi ethnic, multicultural, multi religious society. Mm? You find even you know, the young men who followed Prophet Muhammad at the beginning, from their names and their origins, you understand. Mecca was like New York. There was Suhaib from Byzanta, from Roma. There was Salman from Persia. There was Bilal from Ethiopia. So you see, in this very tiny, small city in the desert, it was. A uh, multi-ethnic society it was multicultural society all of these people were permitted to express their religious and their cultural ideas in fact prophet muhammad what prophet muhammad wanted to do wanted to purify mecca by destroying all these statues or this of the different gods of different tribes and the different people and they refused because they saw uh, his claim as a threat of their trade because if we cut off the guts of the tribe from Mecca, they will start a war against us and this war is going to be bad for the trade, for our economy. So they refused the call of Islam for economical reasons also. So this pre-Islamic society of Mecca was uh, multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic uh, society, it's not primitive society as we used to read in the box of uh, Muslim scholars uh, later after. So uh, uh, when Muslims choose the beginning of their history, this was the Ummah. When the Bagans want to defame Prophet Muhammad in, for, in front of the tribe, they said he's not a poet, he's not a crazy man, he's not, he is a person who make who preach his preaching divide brothers, son and the father, husband and the wife. So all tribes, they boycott Prophet Muhammad because they were afraid of his uh, magic that divide the tribe, that deconstruct the uh, the tribe. And this was the, uh, the idea that all of them uh, have adopted. So here we see Islam came basically to destroy the tribe. Why the tribe? Because these elements of the tribe, hmm, deprived the society of truly living and profoundly living the religious values and we see in islam christianity judaism all religion even some so-called pagan religion were adopted some many say the rahman the word rahman was uh, not only from rahma but also the word rahman which one of the names of god was a god worshipped in in yaman for example we see that Islam tried to adapt everything good. And that's why when Islam spread over in the world, it never had a conflict, there was, there was never a conflict between Islamic law and the local tradition. Because the main principle of Islamic law is to adapt whatever good in the tradition. What is prohibited in Islam is very few things, all the rest is permitted and is lawful. So this strong conflict hmm, between tribe from one side and the Ummah from the other side, okay, in Islamic history, created a new entity, this coexisting contradiction that I am, I am calling. Why? Because at a certain time, the Ummah itself became a tribe. So the Ummah came to destroy the tribe, but in the history, in the course of history, The Ummah became a tribe. How is this? I mention only two elements. One historical element, soon after the death of Prophet Muhammad, his companions gathered together to decide who is going to inherit his temporal power, not spiritual power. Those of Al-Madina who invited Prophet Muhammad to immigrate to them and they uh, uh, protected him as their children and they fought all the battles of Islam. They gathered together in a place called the Saqifat Bani Sa'ida. OK, and in this Saqifat Bani Sa'idah, they decided they choose one of them to be hmm, the ruler after Prophet Muhammad. Those Muhajirin, the family of, not the family, from the tribe of Quraysh who have immigrated with Prophet Muhammad from Mecca to Al-Madina, they rush to this place, Saqifat Bani Sa'idah, and they said, so, no, this cannot happen. And they started a very long conversation. You will find it again in the handouts. Okay? In this conversation, to elect and to select the ruler after Prophet Muhammad, the word the Quran, the word the Islam was not mentioned. They spoke solo, solo, merely, only, <laughs> they speak only about, about the realistic issues, that the tribes on the desert will never accept the power of any tribe apart of that of Quraysh. Why is that? Because Quraysh was the tribe of merchants who, to protect their trade, make a marriage relationship in each tribe. So they are cousins, uncles, of people in each tribe in the desert. That's why the one who comes after Prophet Muhammad must be one of the tribe Quraysh. And after an Islamic theology, this was developed by the false prophetic tradition, in my opinion, that says Imams are from Quraysh. But anyway, so in this debate about who inherited the temporal power of Prophet Muhammad, The only thing was present was not Islamic value, was not the ummah, was the tribe. The logic of the tribe, okay? And this continued what's so-called apostasy war after, uh, soon after the death of Prophet Muhammad, many tribes, they don't want to make part of the ummah anymore. This usually called in the books of Islamic history, apostasy wars, because they say this tribe, turn it back and they refuse the Islam. But this is not true. This tribe were paying a zakah hmm, almonds, uh, to Prophet Muhammad. Why? Because in the Quran, there is a verse that say, take from them fortunes, hmm, share that to purify them and their fortune, okay? And they said, Prophet Muhammad died. And Abu Bakr cannot purify us because he is not a prophet. So we are not going to pay this money anymore. This was the main reason of the war of the pre, of the soon after the death of the uh, first civil war. Abu Bakr, the first caliph, he decided to fight all the tribes in the desert using who? Huh? The Bagans of Mecca, who just entered the Islam after the conquest of Mecca. Okay, they were not those Muslims who fought the battles of Islam, no, they were the enemies of Islam because when Prophet Muhammad conquested Mecca. He gathered the people of Quraysh and asked them, what do you think I am going to do with you? And they said to him, you are our brothers and the son of our brother. And he said to them, go, you are free. And used the word in Arabic, a term called Atulaka, which means somebody became free after being a prisoner. So the generals of the Islamic army that reconquested the Arabic peninsula uh, after Islam was led by generals from the tribe of Quraysh from this category of atlqa those who were freed by prophet muhammad so the tribe came back the tra- Quraysh was the most rich the most intelligent well prepared most people who can read and write so they take over the administration of the newborn state of islam and they ruled it according to the rule of the tribe so we see that islam from its early beginning was living this dualism this coexistence because No one at that time criticized the Prophet Muhammad or criticized the Quran. All of them were believing in Quran and believing in Prophet Muhammad as messenger of God. But all of them were behaving at the same time according to the values and the rules of the tribe. This is one element. The second element that I want to mention is the element of language. We said that Islam came basically to destroy the tribe. After. 40, 50 years of Islam, the Bedouins, the Arabs, conquested all the ancient world. And these Bedouins, they went out of the desert and they started to live in Iraq, in Persia, in Egypt, in these extremely civilized countries. Astonished by this civilization, how they dress, how they eat, how they talk, and their language started to disappear. The new generations were speaking Arabic hardly, like those Arabs who were born in West today, uh, and they cannot speak Arabic correctly. The Muslims were astonished by this phenomenon and said, now we are going to lose everything. If we lose Arabic, we are going to lose Quran, and if we lose Quran, we lost everything. Islam is finished. So what they do? The caliphs heavily financed a unique movement in human history in which thousands of scholars, they went to the most isolated tribes in the desert. Many of them were similar to these tribes that they found every while in the Amazon, completely disconnected with the outside world. They go there to these tribes. Some of them, they didn't even know that there was a prophet sent and the new religion called Islam. They know nothing about this. And they spend, you know, they go there with their camels, tons of uh, paper and ink, and they stayed years, for he- uh, there for years, writing every word come out from the mouths of these Bedouins. The Bedouins became uh, the high reference of the Arabic language, because they present the purity of the Arabic tongue, which is the main element of the Arabic identity. So here, it's very interesting contradiction because Islam came to destroy the tribe. But now, this collected language, the language of the tribe, is the only reference to understand the Quran. So we cannot understand the Islam today if we don't use huh, the language collected from these Bedouins. And it was very powerful in the, uh, t- the time in which that most of Arabic science, and by the way, most of Arabic, what's so-called Arabic science, was um, thanks to non-Arabs. The founder of the Arabic grammar, Sibawai, he was a Persian. Al-Bukhari himself, the one who wrote the second correct book after the Quran, Sahih Al-Bukhari, he is from Ukraine. Okay, so the most of the scholars who have established what we call the Arabic science were not Arabs. So in front of this purity of the language of the Bedouins, they couldn't do anything. Atabari and the other, um, uh, other scholars who interpreted Quran, when they say, OK, I also you will find now in the book many examples of what I am saying. One of the, for example, interpretations of the Quran, he about you know a verse about the right to a man to uh, how a man can punish his disobedient wife. So one of the things was to it means from also Hajara, Hijra, it means to leave them, to be caught them. This was a rational. So if your wife is disobedient, don't talk to her anymore. Okay. But at said, but this is wrong interpretation. Because the verb Hajara comes from Hijar and the Hijar is a sort of rope that they used to tie up the Camels. So they interpreted, he chose the right interpretation is to tie up the women to their beds as a punishment for their disobedience. So we see this, everything, everything in Arabic science that it's the main source of what's so-called today Islamic law, everything was really submissive to this language of the Bedouin society that Islam came basically to destroy it. And this is the the second element of coexisting contradiction within the Islamic tradition. That's why in Islamic tradition today, I am a Muslim, and I believe Islam is really a religion of, of peace. But I cannot deny that many verses in Quran can be easily interpreted completely against the peace. Why? If you follow the line of the tribe, within the Islamic tradition. Because what we call Islamic tradition today is not only Islam, it's this coexisting elements from Islam and the tribe. So the very same verse in Quran can be um, can be in, interpreted in a way and in its completely opposite way at the same time. Democracy, for example, you see some Muslims with you know, certainity say democracy is, you know, like atheism. It's against Islam because the only legislator is God. And democracy gives the people the right of legislation. So it's against Islam. Some other Muslims, like Abdul Muhati Bayumi, for example, made a huge book like this to prove the main inventor of democracy was Islam and was Prophet Muhammad. And that document that was written, you will find it also in the book, that document that Prophet Muhammad wrote when he arrived to Al-Medina is the fairest written constitution in human history. <coughs> How can you bring these two things together? From one side, Islam invented democracy, and from the other side, Islam condemned democracy. How you bring these two things together? The only answer that I found is this coexisting contradiction within the Islamic tradition. When the ummah that came to destroy the tribe This Ummah became a tribe. You find it even in everyday practice. You find today in in mosques in Egypt or in Iraq or in other Muslim countries, they pray only for Muslims. Which is against Islam, against the idea of Islam. in, In the Ummah Islam, we are obliged to love everybody and to invite him to live within our Ummah, even keeping his different faith okay but in the practice today Muslims look to themselves as a tribe not as a ummah not as the space that give liberty and the freedom to everybody to live according to his faith so this coexisting what I call coexisting contradiction within the the Islamic tradition okay I will I will go in modernity it's the same the modernity has the same problem of tradition. We see what so-called modernists in Arab world today and the liberalists in Arab world today, they are not much different from Salafi and from traditionalists. They think in the same way. Traditionalists, everything to be legitimate in our reality today, it has to get a root in the past. And we say, why Arabs uh, Arabs, um, sacrifice the past? Also, modernists, when they want to say no, but there is no contradiction between Islamic law and and reason, what what they do, they justify this by going back to figures like every way Okay? So it's the only way, search in the past for a legitimacy in the present. This what I call uh, overlapping uh, discourses. And it's many, many elements. And I... Uh, uh, the conflict between... Also, the instrument became more important than its goal. Preserving life, for example, to preserve life, we have all of these penalties. But these penalties became more important than preserving life. We see also searching in the past for a source of legitimacy uh, to exist in the present. Uh, Contradiction between form and the content. Huh? I'm sorry I cannot speak about everything, but if you are interested you can ask me uh, after. Uh, justifying instead of this what we said, for example in the breastfeeding case. Everybody's justifying. Nobody had the courage to say this is incorrect or this is not valid anymore for our reality. And I am not saying this because I am criticizing Islam. In fact, this, the greatest scholars in Islamic history did. Abu Hanifa once who's one of the founders of the four doctrines of Islam, Hanifi doctrine, once people went to him and said, the deal between the seller and the buyer cannot be concluded as long as they are in the same place. And said, no, this cannot be, this is not valid. And they said, no, but this is, you know, a confirmed prophetic uh, prophetic tradition. You cannot contest what Prophet Muhammad said. He said, no, I can contest it. If it's against, against reason, I can and they said, it's not valid for our reality today. Imagine if these two persons who made the deal are in prison, or they are traveling for a month in a ship. So I come buy your shirt using it, and after three months, I give it back to you before we get off the ship and said, get back my money. So I said, no, it's not valid anymore. So this way of thinking is not strange huh, for the Islamic tradition. In fact, it existed, but it was marginalized in the history uh, of Islam. But today, we see what we call modernists and the liberalists are very similar to uh, traditionalists. Of course, also rejecting, rejection of the positive principles shared by Islam uh, and, and modernity. And there is endless exam- examples for this. Uh, the, the faculty of... Uh, this is also very interesting because the society today, they don't think anymore. There is a mediation. Modernists are mediators between modernity and the, its a societies in West and our, their local society. Salafi are mediators between present and the past, between people who are living today and the origins and their ancestors uh, in the past, okay? Uh, this is very interesting, exclusion of different, uh, and the exclusion of difference. Some Muslims say if somebody is Christian, he has no rights, he's out. Because they think exactly like the tribal, in a tribal way. Others say, no, there is no difference. Islam, Christianity are the same. There is no difference. Little uh, things, but... So, or exclusion of the different, or exclusion of the difference. Hmm? Looking to the difference as evil, not as a grace huh, uh, from God. Lack of harmony hmm? with time and the place and the between time and the place. Why? Because those who work who may choose to be mediator between present and the past, hmm? traditionalists, they are living here because they go deep in the roots of their culture, but they are not, not living now because they are alienated from the modern civilization. The modernists are the opposite. Mm? They are living now, the moment, the civilization of today, but they are mm, out of their own local societies. So there is no harmony between time and the place, whether for modernists or traditionalists. Uh, Okay. Just five minutes, I'm not so hot and I talk too much. But I I would love to also present this uh, study that I made, statistical study, I choose one, uh, not 1,000, 999 questions, because usually when we study fatwa, we go to study the answer of the Imam. And when we go to study the answer, we, are, <laughs> we sink huh, in the theology and the debate between uh, jurisprudential schools and all of these things. I made a different choice. I choose to study the question of people. Because technology has afforded finally for us, for first time, these questions. Because before, the question is not there. The answer is the most important. Now on these websites, and this is something really very alarming, I advise you to go and see this uh, website, Slam Question and Answer, Slam Today, all of these websites, and see what kind of Islam that they are preaching. And you see how... Hundreds of millions of Muslims are following them, especially in West. Go in the Islam today, Islam question and the answer that is financed by the Ministry of Awkaaf of Qatar, hmm? and search for the word democracy, and you see what will come out for you. So for first time, we have the text of the questions. So I studied these texts of question to understand what Muslims... Okay what Muslims are looking for okay, in, uh, today. And the result was astonishing. Most of Muslims living in West, they don't care about the stereotypes that we know. Huh? They mostly care about living in harmonious way with their neighbors and with their, with their society. Okay? I, you see, for example, I studied the questions 28%, which is the highest one, questions about social relationships. 18% about devotional acts, worshiping. Uh, a relationship was non-Muslim, 17%. So you see, the true interest of Muslims is not building a mosque, is not the veil of the women, uh, is not uh, all uh, these stereotypical things that we usually talk about uh, Borka or Burkini, all of these things are totally marginalized. When you go and see what really Muslims are looking for, they are looking for a good relationship with others. Okay? The answers are something, but the questions are really very interesting. So these questions reveal that, you see here, you know, alcohol, all of these questions, now I think I, I arrived to... 50 minutes that we agreed. But if you ask questions, I will answer. This is, statistic. this is statistical studies uh, has shown, and now we are doing on a very large scale with the University of Bicocca in Italy, uh, with the Department of Statistics. We are studying now. Up to now, we collected 250,000 questions of Muslims living in Europe and the United States to study the structure of the text of this question and see the amazing things that coming out from these questions what are really muslims looking for in the west they are looking for living in harmonious way with others the mosque marginal the hijab is marginal all what we present in media and in public debates about muslims muslims don't care about it okay but this very few percentage makes rumors, and they are very loud, and they are here, and much more present. I think the best solution to the problems of Muslim with West is to give space for this silent majority of Muslims not living in another continent, or in another, living with us here, amongst us here in West. Giving the same visibility, space, and voice, and these extremist voices will be marginalized because the science prove that the majority of Muslims, they don't care about uh, the other things. You remember we left this young guy in front of the bathroom, huh? in pain, cannot decide if he, whether he enter the bathroom or not. It seems very dramatic for us, but for him was no drama at all because in one second he wrote a question to the Facebook page of Al-Azhar, I am in front of the bathroom with my cell phone full of Quranic verses. What should I do? And the imam ready 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Not the same imams they make. him. Uh, he answered to him, Dear young man, Do you by chance memorizes some, memorize some verses of Quran? The young kid, of course. What a, what a question. Yes, I do. The imam asked him, to leave out the bathroom his cell phone and his heart. And this what remains of Muslims today if they don't gain back the attempt to build an ummah and they give up the elements of the culture of the tribe. Thank you very much.
2: Silent majority. Uh, how important it is for. Uh, 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 okay, you spoke about how important it is for the voices of the silent majority, the Muslims in the Western world, to be heard to sort of overshadow these these myths about the hijab and and things of that nature. What what is how will that happen? What is the mechanism that that that, that will happen when it, it appears to be that the Muslims, the silent majority, are
1: afraid to express their opinions and concerns because of more radical Muslims. Yes. I can give example from my experience living in Italy. Uh, In Italy, for example, every year in Christmas, debate in newspaper, you know, for those who defend the right of Muslim kids uh, to do not celebrate the Christmas. And debate in the society, those who say no, but they came to our society, they have to follow our culture, and those, so all of this debate. But when they investigated the Muslims students in the school, they found many of them uh, participating in the presepe. How do you say? Okay. Okay. In the nativity, no, no. So this is really very important to say what to say. Integrating people uh, will not be by their submission submission to the law and the culture of the society, but by a proposal of the society. People do not integrate uh, to law. People integrate in society. But if this society is absent, if this society have no cultural proposal, if this society have no social space for these new elements, these people will live in, parallels, in parallel society. And this is exactly what is happening, at least in Europe, where I live and where I, I study. Muslims are living in parallel society. In Paris, one kilometer away from Tour Eiffel, you find um, a neighborhood that 100% from North, northern Africa. Language, voices, smells, uh, everything. They are living in parallel society. They are not integrated in society. Why? Thank you for this question because it's very important. Today, in our world, there's two models of integration, the French one and the British one. The French one is the secularism. In order to guarantee for everyone an access to the public space, we have to deprive Everyone from manifesting his own identity. A Jew cannot bring his kappa. A Muslim woman cannot bring her veil. A Christian cannot bring his cross to the public space. For example, why? In order to guarantee for everybody a space for him. But what kind of public space is this where everybody enter only without his identity? What kind of person? What kind of dialogue between people without identity in public space? This has created a parallel society in the uh, French model. The British one is, is, is much different. In the British society, say everyone is permitted to come to public space with whatever kind of clause of religion or symbols he wants. It's open society for everybody, but also this is very Dangerous, okay, Because in the absence of a, you know, the profound cultural proposal and the social proposal, this becomes a sort of communitarism, communitarism. Yes, like, each community is living enclosed in its door. For example, a young young lady mm, from Pakistanian origins is forced to marry somebody from Islamabad, OK? Or she is um, deprived of her inheritance. She cannot go. She cannot go to the civil court to complain. Why? Because in the idea of you know, multiculturalism, they approved the Sharia court. And if this lady chooses to go to the civil court, not to the Sharia court, she will be excluded from her community. <coughs> Out of her community, there is no community. Out of her community, there is no society. So again, these people cannot be integrated because of the lack of the social and the cultural proposal. I think the problem of the West today is not that different people who are coming to the West, but is they not, not having the courage to say this is our identity and this is our culture.
0: Uh, to at the beginning of uh, your talk, uh, you said that uh, the ultimate authority uh, for behavior is the heart. Yes. Sir. And I'm wondering if it is uh, in the case that uh, the decision of the heart is in contradiction uh, to Sharia, is in violation of Islamic law, is it permissible for a Muslim to obey the heart and to disobey Sharia?
1: It's not possible, it's obligatory. Because what is sharia? The word law doesn't exist in Arabic language. The word we use is Roman word, kanun. So the idea of law doesn't exist.
2: Sharia.
1: No, what is sharia? Sharia, those who know a little bit of Arabic, like sharia, which means street. So what is sharia? Sharia is the very path towards water in the desert. And it's not any any path, it's not any road. It's a, that one made by the step of the ancestors, of the previous people. So it's a road made by those who have passed before. This, in the desert, this is the only guarantee for life. In the desert, you don't joke. Say, I am walk from here, I am not following the path. No, this means only one thing, death. So this is the meaning of the Sharia. Sharia in Arabic language, in Quranic Uh, context, always used in a rhetorical way to say religion, faith, is the Sharia, is the very path towards eternal life. So Sharia doesn't mean law. And now finally, scholars in West started to do this. They stopped to write Islamic law, and they start to write Sharia. Because Sharia is not law. Sharia is the source of law. In Egyptian constitution, of 1974 so 1971 to uh, president sadat has imposed the second article of egyptian constitution that says sharia is the main source of legislation in egypt in the constitution of uh, 2012 the year after the uh, egyptian revolution in the parliament with the majority of muslim brotherhood they made a huge battle to change the word sharia is a source to, say, the Islamic jurisprudence. Why? Because the Supreme Constitutional Court of Egypt, in a debate about niqab, the burqa, in public space, in hospitals, and the school, they have defined the meaning of the sharia by the general principles of Islam. So this is the meaning of the sharia according to mm, the decision of the Supreme Constitutional Court of Egypt, accepted by the majority of Muslims. So the Sharia is the principles of freedom, justice, is the human values. How can heart be in contradiction with justice? That's why, that's why Prophet Muhammad, in this prophetic tradition, said, consult your heart, consult. Say, but they say, I am an ignorant man. He said, consult your heart. I am a simple man. Consult your heart, consult your heart, consult your heart. This is how it's written in the prophetic tradition. So the heart is the ultimate, the ultimate reference. It cannot be in contradiction with the Sharia, because Sharia is not a codified law. Sharia is general human principles and values. The Islamic jurisprudence can be contested, can be reviewed, can be changed. This happened in in, in the history of Islamic uh, religion 1000 times before. I hope I answered your question. Okay, after the, the, the Mr.
2: The idea of, of the identity conference between Arabs, which is when you spoke when you spoke initially about the tribes that people usually in the Arab countries uh, they try to identify this for the tribe, which is like a single identity, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's easy, right? It makes things. <coughs> Is there any way in your book you spoke about uh, Sufis and how they approach this one single identity? Because my understanding is, for Rumi, for example, he says that why should I have one identity? Why can't I have multiple identities? Uh, it is very dangerous if you define as a Muslim. And when people say that you, you can be only a Muslim, but you can't be American, you can't be single. Why can't it, why can't I be uh, a Muslim and single and American and more? Right? So the the Sufi's perspective it tends to find yourself with one identity versus multiple identities, which is I think this has a solution Which is you don't have to simplify things by saying that you are only one identity can be more. And I think Rumi has a saying saying that
1: live your life as a growing campus, which mm-hmm. is one thing can be fixed by one identity, Yes. which is fine, which is okay. But the
2: other thing should be but growing uh, a big circle across other cultures and other. Mm. So you can integrate. And I think the Quran has a verse that saying, saying that uh, we have created you of different yes. nations. nations. So you know each other. So yes. you know each other. So that's the whole idea of being created as different tribes or nations, to know each other, other than building barriers and something that could prevent
1: you I I completely agree with you about this, but the biggest problem of all Sufi movements that they don't care about the reality. In fact, the most important value of Sufi movement is what they call the absence. Being absent from your surrounding and connected to God. This is a disastrous, in my opinion, element in the Sufi thinking that make it always out of the history. The history of Islam Sufi will never counted as uh, a critical element in this history, because they choose to be out of all kind of political conflict, out of all kind of uh, social practice, out and this, even if they have this all of this wonderful ideas about self, about God, about the relationship between man and God, it's extremely you know they are very beautiful really because they are sick. The, to find the beauty of God in each creature and in each human being and in each place. Yes, this is wonderful. But their choice to be out of the reality, to, don't, to do not make a fight huh, to uh, present and to bring their ideas to life, is a fatal thing because this resulted their complete absence. Even if in Egypt, officially, the Sufi registered in Egypt, they are 25 millions. They are the biggest party, the biggest community ever in Egypt and in Arab world. But they never, they never take part of the political life or the social life. Yes, I understand. But how how you bring this beauty to reality? This is something you know very fatal, you know. In, in, in. But I agree. We love Sufi Ibn Arabi and uh, all of them. Yes, Rumi. All, all of them. They bring you know wonderful readings of Islam. Really, but unfortunately, they are always marginalized by their choice. <laughs> by their
2: choice.
1: I'm sorry, that will have to be the last one. Mr. Okay, mm-hmm. Mr.
2: Hir. Uh, oh, ah, that
0: one already. <laughs>
1: sorry, but we cannot have one minute for him.
0: We have to, we've already gone over 20. Yeah, I'm so sorry. We, could, we can certainly uh, take questions after. Okay. And
2: thank you sorry. very much. Thank you all very much. Thank, thank you.